This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begay's filling in for Gil Gross. Our country and our culture are changing in ways big and small, and those changes are reflected in many ways in last week's Academy Awards. Even though the odds-on favorite for the best actor lost in a surprise upset, the diversity of the entertainment industry was, for the first time, well represented in major categories. Best live-action short category. And the Oscar goes to Two Distant Strangers. Best Supporting Actor. And the Oscar goes to Daniel Kaluuya. Best Supporting Actress. And the Oscar goes to Jo Jung-yoon. Best Director. And the Oscar goes to Chloe Zhao. Nomadland. And Best Picture. And the Oscar goes to Nomadland. And the major changes in the way we consume movies today was also represented by the nominations and victories at the Academy Awards. Here to talk with us about how and why movies have changed forever is the chief movie critic from the Washington Post, Anne Hornaday. I know a lot of people panned the Oscars, but... I thought it was nice to have sort of a change of scenery and uh, a change of production styling, if you will. Yeah, I don't disagree, Jeff. And I, you know what I was really taken with? I loved that pre-show at the party, you know, because it was so beautiful and elegant. And it reminded me, I don't really spend much time with, you know, the elites of Hollywood, but once in a while they let me in. And it reminded me of those events. They're, they're very exclusive they're glamorous. People are swanning around in their clothes and chatting. And I felt like that pre-show captured that in a really, really fun and intimate way. And then we had that Regina King strut, you know, into that, into that gorgeous room. And so right up through that, I was, it was really cool. And it was the perfect way to get us from the party into the room. Um, and then, you know, it really kind of turned, you know, other people have made this observation. It kind of turned into what the Oscars were in the olden days, which was a very private affair. You know, I mean, it really looked like something that was for them, for the people in the room, not necessarily for the viewing audience. So the degree to which it didn't work for viewers, um, I think, is sort of offset by the fact that this is what it this is kind of the roots, you know, of the thing. So I, I, I don't disagree with you that it had its I think it had its high points. Now, you, you said to the degree that it didn't work for viewers, but uh, ratings were down? That's an understatement, my friend. Yes, they were way, way down. They had been going down anyway. But, you know, again, <laughs> all of these live events this year have been down. You know, all of the award shows have been down. Um, so I think that was that was really a function of the weird year we've had. And, the, uh, you know, these were good movies. The nominees were excellent, excellent movies. But a lot of people hadn't caught up with them yet, you know, and and they were sort of spread across platforms and people, it was hard to sort of get that critical mass of attention going to focus people on them. It's interesting, the statistics are starting to come in about 
the movies, you know, the, the, the effect of the Oscars broadcast and already um, movies like Another Round, you know, which won for Best International Feature the, the, uh, by, by Thomas Vinterberg, that has gone up 600% on streaming platforms since Sunday night. Um, the top three iTunes rentals are Promising Young Woman, Nomadland, and The Father. So the net effect of the Oscars in terms of raising awareness and concentrating focus, I think they did their job, you know, for, for a lot of these movies. Who do you think or what movie do you think was the big loser? Well, clearly it would have to be The Trial of the Chicago 7, you know, because of all eight nominees, I think it's the only one that didn't come away with anything. And, and um, you know, which is too bad because it's a, it's a good movie. I, I wouldn't, I don't think it's a masterpiece, you know, or great, but it, it's, it's not a bad movie. And it's certainly featured some fabulous performances. Of course, Sasha Baron Cohen was nominated. He is terrific in the film. Frank Langella is fantastic. Um, Mark Rylance. So it's just, that's kind of the way the cookie crumbles. You know, I, I don't think it was anything um, to do with the weakness of the film. I think it really was the strength of the, of the field, you know? I think, listen, as someone who loves to watch movies, you know, you and I talked about my day job, which is covering very serious stories. So I look for an escape. And for me, it's always been Hollywood movies. You know, I have my own library of, of Hollywood movies that I turn to even to watch movies over and over and over again. And what I, what I found with Hollywood through this pandemic is that it really has had to adapt. And from a viewer's perspective, my perspective, I think some of these some of these ways in which they've changed or the studios have adapted has been really viewer friendly. You know, in other words, being able to see these these blockbuster movies not, you know, for the first time in a theater, which I'm sure the studios don't like don't like that, but having it come into your home and paying a little extra money or to see it for the first time in your home, I think that's great. And do you think that's a way, the wave of the future? Oh, for sure. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to go back. Um, this will, we, will, we will see permanent changes. Um, you know, and we're already seeing it with Warner Brothers announcing that they would, they would release their slate day and date in theaters and on HBO Max. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's people no longer want to be told how and where and when to see a film. You know, they'll, people, the, the audience expectation is that they'll be able to access this stuff um, when they want to and in the way they want to. And so I think the, I think though, that's, that's all great. The accessibility that I think this past year has afforded us, not just with these big studio films, um, but even th like with things like film festivals, right? Like a lot of these festivals saw huge leaps in their audience because people could go, you know, they didn't, they weren't, there was no um, barrier to entry in terms of geography or expense or travel or anything like that. So, um, that's a good thing. I think what's, it's not even, maybe concerning is even too strong a word, but I think what's a challenge is that focus, you know, is that is that ability for people like me as a critic to direct audiences to something that's really special amid all of this information that's coming at them now. You know, they're, they're just deluged with choices in terms of series and feature films and, you know, limited series and docs. And, you know, we just have so much coming at us. And so I, I do hope that, we will find ways to get that collective conversation going, which I do think theatrical releases can, you know, that, that, that makes things an event. You know, it does make, it does sort of focus that attention in a way 
that we need to find um, a substitute for somehow for streaming. And I, I guess that makes it even more important for these films to have a big name attached to it to get people to pay attention. So it sounds like some of these innovations are really good for the top stars. Yeah, and I think you know it's a, it's definitely a concern among my friends in the indie community, you know, the independent, and I do mean independent community because you have independents that do feature big stars who want to do interesting, you know, kind of risky work like a Frances McDormand and a Nomadland, right? You know, like that's. Um, but then you have the real, true little indies that don't have any big stars, and they're just good little movies. Um, and and I think people in that community are definitely concerned, especially when theaters do start to reopen, the way, and, and understandably, the way that Hollywood is going to get us back into theaters is through those big vehicles, is through those West Side stories and In the Heights and, um, you know, those big events that often will feature recognizable names. And that's, again, totally understandable, but we just want to make sure that the ecosystem is balanced in a way that people can find the little, the littler ones too, you know, that are worthy and that might be prove entertaining. Have the studios been able, able to weather this pandemic storm? I know in my neighborhood, there are some theaters that have shut their doors. Mm. You mean permanently? Yeah. That's the, that is the question. I mean, again, I do think that the, um, in, in a, in a way that independent world has, has an advantage here just because, um, when I think of my neighborhood theater, I think of the independent art house theaters that I'm lucky enough to have in my city. I live in Baltimore and also in Washington, D.C., where I work. We are blessed with, um, in addition to the big multiplexes, we do have these really beautifully run independent theaters that are hubs, you know, for their communities. They're, they're, they're neighborhood institutions, and they have spent the pandemic reaching out to their customers they have invented virtual cinemas to keep people coming to their website to rent things digitally. They have communicated. Um, they've also been able to take advantage of grant writing, you know, they, as a lot of them are nonprofits. And so that's, that's actually an advantage to keep them solvent. So I, I think they're probably in a, even though they're vulnerable within, you know, compared to those huge behemoth multiplexes, they're also kind of in an advantage in terms of just having that loyalty. We'll hear more from movie critic Ann Hornaday right after this. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff McGaze. Let's get back to our conversation about the Oscars and the film industry with the chief movie critic from the Washington Post, Ann Hornaday. One thing we saw at the Oscars, diversity. Yeah. Uh, not only just with the host, but you could, you could feel an effort to offer a more complete picture of what this society looks like. True, although, you know, it, yes. And I also feel that what I liked about that picture is that it was completely organic. It wasn't, I don't really think the Academy operates like, oh, we need to check this box or we need to, you know, I mean, they have been under pressure with, with campaigns like Oscars So White and even Me Too to a certain extent and Time's Up, right? They have, it is top of mind not to dismiss films by women and women of color and, and people of color and people from other countries, by the way. It was diverse, you know, globally. Um, 
But I think at the end of the day, they really do vote on what they think are the best movies. And in this case, it was, it, they were movies like Judas and the Black Messiah. You know, they were movies like Soul and Promising Young Woman and Nomad Land. And so I, you know, it wasn't because they were, um, dis, you know, disregarding better movies in order to show how progressive they were. It was like they actually <laughs> voted for the best movies. You know, they nominated the best movies and voted for them. And I, so I feel like, that's what I thought was so encouraging was that, you know, it, it, we misunderstand it to think that they were trying to, you know, virtue signal or something like that. No, no. These were the best movies of last year for sure. No, no doubt. Um, and then they, and they happened, like you said, to reflect the world as we all see it and understand it. And another thing I think that is sometimes overlooked or, or maybe um, understated is just how influential these new global, these international members are, because what they've been recruiting, they've been recruiting more women, they've been recruiting more people of color in America, American filmmakers, but they've also recruited a lot more international members. And that's when you see things like a Parasite winning Best Picture, um, or a Minari, you know, getting recognized, or another round being up for Best Director. I mean, that's that's a global, that's just a more expansive view of where cinema comes from. And I think that's really exciting. And do you think the challenges of the pandemic has led to a higher quality of films being produced? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, of course, we saw films this year that had already been done, you know, before they were sort of made in pre-pandemic times. So, um that will, you know, it'll be very interesting to see the production values of the movies being produced within these new protocols. You know, I'm, you know, filmmaking is problem solving. <laughs> it, it, the the ingenuity of it and the way the medium moves forward is always people responding to a problem, you know, or a challenge or an obstacle that they need to get over. And so, um, you know, we we've seen little hints of that. There was a there was a little film that came out on Netflix with John David Washington and Zendaya um, that was kind of a two hander, all done in one house. It was it was done during COVID, um, not a masterpiece, but I think a really valiant effort to try to do something creative under under sort of challenging circumstances. And then there was a really wonderful little movie that came out last year called Host that was done entirely on Zoom. You know, and so I just think it's great when filmmakers kind of rise to the occasion and um, and just make, you know, make a way out of no way, as the saying goes. But in terms of level of execution, um, I'm not sure we're going to see things get better, but I think, you know, we'll we'll see some innovation within the within the existing language for sure. What is your favorite movie? of this past Oscar season? My favorite movie was, was Nomadland. It was, and it really was because I think, you know, and again, and Frances McDormand was right the other night when she said, try to see this on as big a screen as possible because I saw it on my small screen at, at the Toronto International Film Festival, which was virtual. And that's the one where I really wish, I, I just sat there thinking, oh, this must be magnificent on the big screen. Just because I think Chloe Zhao, her eye for landscape, her um, love, her obviously obvious love for the American West 
and those vistas. Um, it just comes through, you know, and that it just the natural beauty that she focuses on throughout the movie. And then just Frances McDormand's performance. I just thought it was, it was just stunning. I, you know, she just held me throughout. She held my attention. She held my heart. It, it, it's just a great screen performance, just devoid of any affectation or, or um, ornament, you know, not even any makeup, you know, and that's when you know you're in the hands of a great actor, when they just start, they're just there, you know, naked and you're with them. So yeah, that was, um, that was a favorite. I, I really loved Judas and the Black Messiah. I just think that is a, you know, I'm always, here's another instance where we're going to show our age, but I, I kind of love those 70s movies, you know, those 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 kind of gritty urban thrillers, um, the Sidney Lumet movies, the Alan Pakula movies. And Judas and the Black Messiah reminded me of that kind of film. It's just so well made. And it's a it's a thriller. I mean, it definitely has a political a political subject matter um, and protagonist. But and but even beyond that, it works just as a good movie. It's beautifully shot. It just has that sheen to it, you know. Uh, great performances by Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield and Dominique Fishback. So, yeah, that was another one of my big favorites from the year. Yeah, Daniel Kaluuya, which he, he will be a household name because he has he has had just a variety of hit movies, different genres, and he is so talented. And then when you hear his British accent, you wonder how could he, how could he be so convincing uh, as an American, uh, you know, with his American accent, if you will. I mean, he was—he is really good in just about everything that he does. He is phenomenal. He's phenomenal, and he is super phenomenal in. Um, in uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. I mean, I just think if people want kind of a, a t well, obviously most people know him from Get Out and he was fantastic. And like you, I was shocked to learn he was British after seeing that movie. But to see, if you see, if you know him from Get Out and then you see him in Judas and the Black Messiah, you really do see just that range. It's just, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. Astonishing, and it even came through. One of my disappointments from the other night from the Oscars was that they didn't play more clips because I think um, when we did see some clips, we did get a sense of these of these performances, and that was a clip that really did show us, like, whoa, this is going to blow your hair back. You know, it's so good. One last question. So what is your favorite movie of all time? <laughs> All right, this is actually an easy one. The, the movie that I always lift up when people ask me that is The Best Years of Our Lives. Does that ring a bell? Uh, that does not ring a bell. Who's in that? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to preach the gospel to you for a minute here. <laughs> it's a 1940... No, it, because this is a great example. It's from 1946. It's directed by William... The great William Wyler... It's a drama about a group of returning World War II veterans who come home to find life, you know, to, and, and readjust to life, readjust to civilian life with their families. Cast, an unbeatable cast, you have Myrna Loy, Frederick March, Dana Andrews, Teresa Wright, 
uh, Harold Russell, who plays a veteran who has lost the use of his hands, and he's grappling with with his um, disability. It is so ahead of its time in terms, you know, we this was pre-terms like PTSD, <laughs> um, and it was certainly pre-disability rights movement. And it is utterly of the moment in terms of the things that these guys are grappling with, but it's stunningly made. It's perfectly directed by Weiler, beautifully photographed, um, beautifully acted. And I, and I think that often when, when you ask a critic, like, what's your favorite movie? They'll say something like a Citizen Kane, right? Or a Casablanca or something by Alfred Hitchcock. And I kind of, I feel that Best Years of Our Lives deserves to be up in that pantheon. And it's often overlooked and not, not enough people have seen it. And I just think if you, if you watch it, it's often on TCM. If you, you know, however way you can access it, if you do, you'll be really, really glad you did because it is absolutely just, it's a perfect movie. And that is a perfect ending for our interview. You've given me something to do this weekend. (laughs) My pleasure. That's what I'm here for. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you, Jeff. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Welcome back to America Changed Forever. I'm Jeff Begay's filling in for Gil Gross. This year, the feature film Nomadland was the big winner at the Academy Awards, bagging six Oscars, including Best Actress. And the Oscar for Best Actress goes to Frances McDormand. Best Director. And the Oscar goes to Chloe Zhao. In Best Picture. And the Oscar goes to Nomadland. Last year, CBS News' Tony DeCopo reported on the inspiration for the movie, the growing trend of Americans living on the road, some by necessity and some by choice. America is a land of vast, open spaces, best explored one mile at a time. But while we've long romanticized the open road, very few of us would want to live here. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round. But then there's the Shanup family. Robin, Robert, and their four kids, all under the age of 10. Until recently, Robin was a stay-at-home mom, and Rob worked long hours as a financial planner in Orange County, California. I'm working at a very good office with very good people. We owned a home. We were normal. Yeah, we were normal at one point. That is until... We kind of started questioning the mentality that just because you have kids, everything is put on hold. We love to travel, and we thought, well, why can't we just bring our kids with us? Now the family of six eats, sleeps, and lives in a converted school bus. 
So this is it. Home sweet home. <laughs> home sweet home. Can stand up. Just barely. <laughs> How many square feet is this? 250. She knows about the top of her head, yes. Mm -hmm. We caught up with them in rural Tennessee. We see what we're doing too is a large part of our kids' education. I mean, they're pretty young and they've seen the Declaration of Independence. They've seen the Lincoln Memorial. They've seen a lot. Robin homeschools the kids and Rob is still a financial planner. I consider a lot of these people conscientious objectors to the culture we're in right now, which is really get on this work treadmill with no guarantee of you know any sort of safety net and yet you should still pledge allegiance to the culture of the endless work week. Jessica Bruder, who chronicled van life in her recent book, Nomadland, says that the movement accelerated during the housing crisis of 2008 and hasn't stopped a decade later. Millennials I met on the road said, look at this, I can't pay back my student debt or I don't want to go into debt. I can afford to do this. I should do it when I'm healthy and spry and they're out there doing it. And these days, either by choice or circumstance, more and more people are making America's highways and scenic byways home. Thanks, at least in part, to Bob Wells. What do you do? 100 miles from nowhere, right, car breaks down. Just, uh, You're in your home. <laughs> you pull over and you make dinner. <laughs> Literally. Now, to be clear, Bob Wells knows what you're thinking when you see the van and the beard. For most people, I think, the archetypal failed character in American life is the guy in the van down by the river. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> you want to say you're a loser, that's how you would describe it. And the first night Wells slept in his van, he felt like a loser. I had uh, just gotten a divorce, something I swore I would never do. We were fighting over the kids. I faced losing them. And now I'm living in a van. But as the months rolled by... Every step of the way, you just answer every problem as it comes up. Bob Wells started to feel less lost and more like a man who had found a roadmap to happiness. 20 years later, he's sure of it. You have enough money at this point, you could go live in a home. I could live in a home. But you're not. Why would I torture myself? <laughs> Why would I make myself miserable? Oh, you must dream of that lever on the recliner. <laughs> oh, you got me. I do miss my recliner. Uh, but it's not worth the sacrifice. My name is Bob Wells, and I own this channel. This former grocery store clerk from Alaska now runs a website and more recently a YouTube channel to spread the gospel of van dwelling. Equal parts frugality. Eight dollars on Amazon. Simplicity. Pretty straightforward. And freedom. There is a different way to live. Wells also covers van life 101. Like, is this legal? Mostly. Depends on where you park and for how long. Doesn't everyone need a permanent address? Sure, but there are mail forwarding services. What about work? If you have a cell signal, you can work anywhere. And of course, the biggie. How do you, you know. The topic of today is poop. You can find out that answer yourself online, where Bob's videos are approaching 50 million views. Still, you're right if you think van life is not an easy life. As I found out when I tried to make a rented minivan a mini home, even with Bob Wells as my neighbor. My short-term plan is to find a shower. <laughs> <laughs> That's your short-term plan. <laughs> and a basin I can wash and shave with. Maybe I'm not cut out for the van life. Wells says he's committed to helping everyone find their own answers out here on the not-so-lonesome road. It is a story of desperation and of ecstatic victory. Wow. Do you feel like your message is chipping away at 
the model of America that exists today? I hope so. <laughs> Not do. to put too fine a point on it. No, yeah, I hope so. That's my goal. This is America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever. I'm Jeff Begays, filling in for Gil Gross. Last week, the Academy Awards experienced one of the biggest upsets in Oscar history. The Academy Award for actor goes to Anthony Hopkins, the father. Chadwick Boseman, who died tragically of colon cancer in August of 2020, was the odds-on favorite to win for his role in the film version of the August Wilson play Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. In fact, if you were a betting person, Las Vegas would have paid a 700% return on your wager. That's how unlikely Hopkins' win was. Scott Feinberg is the Hollywood Reporter's Awards columnist and the host of their podcast, Awards Chatter. Scott, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. All right, so you weren't the only one surprised by the Hopkins win. Is that right? That's right. I mean, we... Uh... There are charts that show what sort of the leading pundits at all the different trade publications and industry publications, um, even New York Times, you know, all of the people that weigh in on this, uh, nobody had him. Uh, nobody had Hopkins. It was taken as a given that Bozeman would win. He'd won everything else up to this point, all the different awards that precede the Oscars, except for the BAFTA award, which was not that surprising because they do tend to lean towards British actors more than, or, you know, UK actors more than other organizations. And they do have a rocky history with actors of color. So if there was ever going to be a hiccup for Bozeman, it made sense that it would be at BAFTA. And so why was Bozeman expected to win by so many? I think that he gave a great performance in a movie that, was widely seen, not least because it was on Netflix. And uh, there he was a very well-liked and well-respected uh, actor and person. And it was just a, a terrible tragedy that uh, he died so young. And I think there was also a sense that, look, he's never even been nominated before this year, whereas his competitors his top competitors from Anthony Hopkins to Gary Oldman, uh, they had been, they were past winners. Then the other uh, fellow nominees this year were people like Riz Ahmed and Steven Yeun, who are expected to have long and great careers. So there would be other opportunities presumably for them, but this was the one chance you'd have to recognize Chadwick Boseman. The movie, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it still, it did well, even though he didn't take home the top, actor prize. Yeah, uh, I think it, there there was always a, you know, maybe the thing that should have given more of us pause about predicting Bozeman was the fact that the movie did not get nominated for Best Picture, which is usually the main sign that a movie has been widely seen and widely liked. But it did get a bunch of other nominations and it did win in several other categories. I mean, the, the other key nomination that it got was for Best Actress, Viola Davis, who then won the SAG Award for her category where at the same evening when Bozeman won for his category. And so there seemed to be some momentum amongst actors who do make up the largest portion of the Academy. But um, at the same time, no Best Picture nomination, and the places where it was winning were not the most competitive categories this year. You had makeup and hairstyling, costume design, uh, so it was it was an unusual situation. 
You thought it was a gut punch. I think most people did. It's not, you know, it's nothing against Anthony Hopkins, who was wonderful as always. And, um, you know, uh, nobody's saying he wasn't a worthy winner. It's just that there had been such an expectation going into the show, which was only perpetuated by the placement of the Best Actor Award at the end of the night, that this was going to be a big emotional win for Bozeman and to then instead have the worst thing happen that could happen, which was to have it go to somebody who isn't even there. That was, that was not a, a, a good decision. I guess Hollywood doesn't always get a happy ending. It scripted. <laughs> so what other yeah. famous clubs have you seen from Oscar predictions? Well, I mean, the, just the one that is the, the, I don't think it will ever be topped, of course, was, I guess it was four or five years ago now when I'm sitting in the audience. And as everyone in the world expected, Best Picture winner is announced as La La Land. And then, as you know, (laughs) all hell broke loose. The Academy Award for Best Picture. You're impossible. Come on. La La Land. We lost, by the way, but, you know. I'm sorry. No. There's a mistake. This This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight. Best Picture. So that, you know, that one, whatever happened with with Chadwick Boseman, it's, it's terrible, but it's not as terrible as getting wrong the biggest award of the night, letting three people give an acceptance speech for an award they didn't even win, and then you know, <laughs> having to dig your way out of that That's one. That's right. Who, who was the presenter? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. That was uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. And the assumption was, That's right. kind of unfairly to them, the assumption was, well, they're getting up there in years. They must have somehow screwed it up. <laughs> and in fact, it was all the fault of the PricewaterhouseCooper accountant who had been too distracted taking an iPhone photo of Emma Stone backstage that he, <laughs> you know, that he handed the wrong envelope to uh, to these poor geriatrics. <laughs> uh, I wonder where he is now. Yeah, witness uh... protection. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh! All right, any others uh, that or any other? Let's broaden it out sure. a little bit. Any other? memorable Oscar moments from history that stand out to you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there in terms of unexpected results, I mean, the again, one in terms of ones that I was personally there to see and cover, the one that that took the air out of the room more than anything uh was when the entire world expected Glenn Close to finally win for the wife after being nominated at that point seven times without having won and then they announced that it's Olivia Coleman for the favorite, who, again, like Anthony Hopkins, was a very worthy winner. But nobody in the world had predicted that really very, very few. Uh, and it was just, a, a again, a bit of a gut punch. Um, and then, you know, Glenn Close again this year was nominated and lost again. So she is now tied with Peter O'Toole for the most nominations without a win among performers at eight. Um, but. There are, there have been many over the years. I mean, I, again, I I love my Oscar history, and you can go back to something like even in the '40s, the whole world had Rosalind Russell winning for "Morning Becomes Electra." It was a slam dunk, except that Loretta Young won for 
for the farmer's daughter. Uh, I mean, the, every decade has something like this. Um, but I mean, another one that, that is famous is Marissa Tomei as the, you know, breakout star for her kind of almost the carry <laughs> my cousin Vinny. Exactly. She's up against a four, classic. a classic, uh, but up against four, you know, great British dames. I think Vanessa Redgrave and Maggie Smith and people like that, as I recall. And then they announce uh, they have Jack Palance who had previous year been a little nuts and done pushups when he won. He now comes out and reads that the winner is Marissa Tomei. And to this day, there are, you know, people who are totally sure that he, read the wrong name or said, you know, didn't read it correctly. And then nobody ever corrected him. I think that's nonsense and unfair to Marissa Tomei, who's turned out to be a great actress, but that is another one where nobody saw it coming. <laughs> All right. Scott Feinberg, the Hollywood reporters awards columnist and the host of their podcast awards chatter. Thanks Scott. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to America changed forever from the CBS audio network. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays. Because of COVID-19 restrictions, 2021's Oscar telecast was an Academy Awards show unlike any other. Two highlights of the presentation were some unconventional moments during acceptance speeches. Here is Best Supporting Actor Daniel Kaluuya speaking about life, much to the chagrin of his mother, who was present in the audience. Like, it's incredible. My mom met my dad. They had sex. It's amazing. Like, do you understand? I'm here. You know what I mean? So, I'm so happy to be alive. And here is Best Actress Frances McDormand saluting the sound engineer from the movie Nomadland, who died unexpectedly in March this year. We give this one to our wolf. If you hadn't guessed, the man Miss McDormand was honoring was named Michael Wolf Snyder. The Oscars has a long legacy of unconventional speeches. Back in 1997, Kim Basinger figured out a solution for how to make sure that she was appropriately grateful in her speech. Wait a minute. Um, we did only get 30 seconds. And, um, and to give a thousand thank yous... Uh, I just want to thank everybody I've ever met in my entire life. Um. That same year, Cuba Gooding Jr. had a different approach when he won his Best Supporting Actor Award for his role in the movie Jerry Maguire. <laughs> um, I just want to, oh, here we go, okay. Uh, the studio, I love you, and Cameron Crowe, and uh, Tom Cruise, I love you, brother! I love you, man! Derek Rose, Sean Settles, uh, Keith Butler, all my behind-the-scenes crew, Regina King, I love you! You did a great job when we made the movie! 
And in 1998, Robin Williams recalled the wise advice that his father gave him about a career in show business. And most of all, I want to I wanna thank my father up there, the man who, uh, when I said I wanted to be an actor, he said, wonderful, just have a backup profession like welding. In 2010, Sandra Bullock questioned the legitimacy of her own win. Did I really earn this or did I just wear you all down? Um, and in 2012, Meryl Streep, who has been nominated for more Oscars than any other actor at this pointed observation. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. I, <laughs> when they called my name, I had this feeling I could hear half of America going, oh no, oh, come on, why her again, you know? And that is this week's America Change Forever. Thanks for listening. Don't forget that you can download past episodes of ACF Anywhere podcasts are available. As always, thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is America Change Forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.